If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 3 for just one more week. As we turn to God's Word, let's also turn to Him and ask for His aid and assistance. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, we long for You to move among Your people, to change us. And Father, You have been pleased to give us Your Word and Spirit, change agents. And Father, throughout the Scriptures, we see Your people crying out to You to provide what they can't produce, but what they certainly need. And we're there also, Father. We need You to produce in us that which we cannot do ourselves. So, Father, be pleased to use your word and spirit to convert those who need to be converted, to conform those who are new creations in Christ more and more into the image of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're here at week nine of looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. Acts is not just biblical history, Acts is our history. And knowing our history, who we are and where we've been, and being thankful for our history is a necessary component as we move forward into the future. You see, in Acts, we're all given a front row seat to see how Jesus kept his promises to be with his church and build his church through the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Acts, just like all of Scripture, has been given to inform, to deepen and strengthen our faith. And in particular, the very name Acts reminds us that Christianity is grounded first and foremost in history, in God's acts, in His actions, in real time, space, history. Acts, as we're seeing, reminds us that the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. To be sure, as we will see, the implications of the gospel are are tremendous as they work themselves out in life. But the starting point is good news that you receive and believe, not good advice that you act upon. For those of you with us about a little over a month ago on a Saturday evening, we had our our, our vision dinner. And remember, uh, we looked at Romans 15 which we get a lot out of in terms of our, our calling as a church to worship God with one heart and one voice, to worship, but also to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, to worship and welcome. And as, for those of you that were there that night, remember I, I, I kept on reading in, in Romans 15 and discovered, lo and behold, that it's also about witness as the gospel goes out to the nations 
And people come to faith in Christ. And so we talked about that night that a church that worships God and a church that welcomes one another is a church that cannot but through those very actions of worship and welcome also witness. And the witness to be sure takes place out there in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. But the witness also takes place here as people are gathered with us. And as we welcome them. So one point that was made that night is is along with worship and along with welcome, we need to do an intentional job more so. And me starts with me to to witness, to share Christ, to proclaim the gospel. And and to do that, I was rereading a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, written by J.I. Packer. Many of you know him as the author of Knowing God, but he's also the author of a number of books, including Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And Packer says this, the evangelistic message is the gospel of Christ and him crucified, the message of man's sin and God's grace, of human guilt and divine forgiveness, of new birth and new life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a message made up of four essential ingredients. And Packer goes on to say that those ingredients are this. It's a message about God. It's a message about sin. It's a message about Christ. And then it's a summons to faith and repentance. Well, in our text today, I think we will see those four ingredients as Peter proclaims the gospel, as Peter witnesses of the person and work of Christ. Well, before we read this, let me just set the scene. Who's doing what in Solomon's portico on the east side of the temple, the part of the temple that we believe Jesus taught at at times? You're going to see a healed man who's still leaping with joy and shouting praise. You're going to see a curious crowd that is gathered, that is astounded, that is full of amazement, astonished. They are greatly wondering. And then you will see Peter being guided by the Holy Spirit, who senses the opportunity and seizes it. He addresses the gathered crowd. Now, as an apostle... Peter is continuing the work that Jesus did. Recall these words from Luke 4 that Jesus said this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Well, at this moment with the crowd assembled, Peter knows that he is there for a purpose as well, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Peter Peter preaches what can be seen to be a four-point sermon. Join with me as I read Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. While he, and that would be the lame beggar that had been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, 
whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has been given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Well, before we unpack his sermon, it's important to notice, first of all, Peter's approach. As was the case on the day of Pentecost, he first has to address a misconception. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, uh, people thought that they were drunk, and Peter had to refute that, and then he turned around and proclaimed Christ. Well, here, he's also addressing a misconception. And he does that by asking a question, and he, in doing that, he makes a statement, and he says basically this, Don't look at this man and don't look at us. Don't look at us. Now, Peter redirects the gaze of the people away from himself. Do you all realize this is Peter? Spokesman of the disciples, one that never missed an opportunity to say something. Peter is not attempting to draw attention to himself. He's rather going to point to Christ. Do you remember John the Baptist's words of Jesus? He must increase and I must decrease. Do you realize that later Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, said this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. My friends, if you don't get anything, get this. Peter is preaching, not himself. He is preaching Christ. My friends, I don't know 
if you all are familiar, but a lot of folks, um, you read the stories of their conversion. And they walked into a church and they heard somebody reading Scripture. And they came to faith in Christ. They came into a church and there was a man preaching and he was stuttering. He, he, he maybe had some outdated illustrations. But he was pointing people to Christ. And people were converted. So right off the bat, Peter is saying, it's not this man that you need to pay attention, and it's certainly not to us that you need to look. But we will tell you, I will tell you who to look, and that's the job of every preacher, to, to, to use the Word of God which speaks of Christ to point to Christ. So here's his four points. First, this is what you have done. In a word... You didn't receive Jesus, but you have rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And, and, and you've done a threefold dishonor. You've delivered over. You've handed him over and denied him, disowned him before Pilate. And, and Pilate was wanting to release Jesus. And, and you deliver him to Pilate and you disown him before Pilate and you... You deny the holy and righteous one and there are echoes of the Old Testament descriptions coming. Notice in our text, Peter talks about the fact that not only did you want to put Jesus to death, but you wanted a convicted murderer to be freed. Now isn't that interesting? Not only is it true, we read about it in the Gospels, but Peter includes it here. Why? To show the depth of what we are capable of. We can flip good and bad around, and we can not only just, just uh, be okay with evil, but we can promote evil. So here is this condemning of the innocent and the acquitting of the guilty at the same time. And in a striking paradox in verse 15 you have killed the author of life this is what you've done he says you have rejected Jesus and because you have rejected Jesus guess what you are responsible for Jesus's death um, we're not responsible for this man's healing but you are responsible for the death of Jesus. Here's the object of the focus, the center of gra gravity. Don't look at us. We're not responsible for the healing. And don't even look at this, to this man. He's not responsible for his own healing. But rather, take a look at yourselves. Take a look at what you have done. This is where the proclamation of the gospel begins. And to be sure... We probably won't find ourselves in an audience of descendants of Abraham in Jerusalem. But who knows what audience God will sovereignly place us in front of. And his point is this. This is what you have done. Peter proclaims not just what you have done, but also what God has done. God, you will see, not only has reversed your every move, but He has overwhelmed your every move. 
How's he done that? Well, let's find out. Uh, God has done three things. In verse 13, we see that God has glorified his servant, Jesus. God has fulfilled the promise of Isaiah 52, 13, as we read earlier. This, Peter is saying, is the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All the promises that God made, he has fulfilled as he has glorified his servant. And he's demonstrated this, we read in verse 15, by raising Jesus from the dead. Remember Pentecost, the sermon? It was primarily focused on the resurrection and the death of Jesus. He's raised him. And we are witnesses. There are, there's objective evidence. God raised Jesus, you see, to make Jesus the one who leads others to life. And it is through faith in the risen Jesus that this lame man was healed. When Peter says his name, he means everything that is true about that person. In a sense, the person himself, it's a focus on Christ. And he says, by faith in his name, most likely it's referring to Peter's faith rather than any faith on the part of the lame man. Because you see, Peter was trusting God. Peter was trusting Jesus to work Through him. Jesus healed the man. And faith or trust in Jesus also healed the man through Peter. It was Jesus who was continuing to heal, but he was doing that through his servant, through his apostle Peter. So Peter had said, objectively, we are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And then here's subjective evidence. This healing It's a sign of the resurrection. In fact, it's the same original uh, verb that's used in chapter 3, verse 7 of Jesus being raised from the dead. This man has been raised up as well. So we've considered what the people have done. They've rejected Jesus. They are responsible for his death. But we've also seen what God has done. God has glorified his servant, Jesus He's raised that servant from the dead. And he's healed a man through Jesus' continuing ministry. You know, it's, it's been a contest thus far, you know, between your rejection of Jesus versus God's redemption and, or God's vindication of Jesus. I wish Rick was here. Uh, y'all probably didn't know this, but Rick was a, a, a professional wrestler uh, years ago on by. And, and, and he would know about contest, right? Contest between two wrestlers. Here you've got the rejection of Jesus. Is that going to have the last word? Or is it rather God's vindication of Jesus that's going to have the last word? Well, you see, it is no contest. But God has not only done these things, He's done something else. Amazingly, God has made an offer. God has made an offer. You see, this is what God offers. Notice in verse 17, Peter's compassion, his comfort, his, his gentleness. He, he says, you acted in ignorance. You see, the tone here moves from a blunt indictment to passionate invitation. You see, Peter's goal really is not to condemn. Why? He knew the words of Jesus, right? People are condemned already 
That's why Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world through him would have life. In saying you acted in ignorance, he's not removing their culpability, but he's leaving the door open for God's mercy and their repentance to walk through. See, Peter is using an Old Testament distinction between the sins of ignorance and the sins of presumption. Children, have you ever seen the police car pulling someone over the police for speeding? Have you ever seen it on the side of the road? Right. Now, sometimes the person in the driver's seat said, Officer, I did not see the, the speed limit sign. Is that a good defense? No. But there are other times when you see the speed limit and what do you do? You don't care, right? A sin of ignorance, you get the ticket. A sin of presumption, you probably get a bigger ticket. But what are they ignorant of? They're not ignorant of what happened. Uh, Peter's just reminded them. They're ignorant of the scriptures. They're ignorant of the scriptures. Um, Jesus, in speaking to the Sadducees, remember about the resurrection of all things. What did Jesus say? You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In a way, Peter is saying the same thing. Brothers, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Peter brings to bear the entire Old Testament witness to Jesus Christ, the, uh, the promised Messiah. Now, here is what God offers. Look with me. Three things. First of all, the forgiveness of sins. In the second half of uh, uh, verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out, washed off, erased, obliterated without a trace. Along with forgiveness, there is the promise of times of refreshing. I don't know about you guys, but I'm always in need of forgiveness and I'm always in need of times of refreshing, of rest and relief and refreshment. And Peter is saying that that is available now through the Holy Spirit. If, if forgiveness is the wiping away of sin, kind of this legal sense, this time of refreshment is a positive counterpart to be filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So not only does God offer forgiveness and refreshment, but he makes the offer of a coming time of restoration, a time of restoring, and that will come at the return of Christ in glory. I remember this passage that's been a great comfort to me through the years, and I think to others, it's in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in uh, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Think about that. Jesus' return brings with it not only personal restoration, but cosmic restoration. All the things that are broken are going to be made right. It's a time for restoring. You see, 
God is offering three good things. Total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, and a universal restoration to come. But our text also tells us that God offers something else. And I think this something else is not very good. And what would that be? That would be destruction to those who don't listen to Jesus. See, if you go back to Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses to tell the people that that God's going to raise up a prophet like me. And your job is going to be to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, you'll read some interesting Hebrew that speaks of, you're going to be called to account for that. Peter makes his own interpretation. He says you're going to be destroyed. It's interesting. What does Jesus say at, or excuse me, what does God the Father say at Jesus' baptism? What does he say? Listen. Listen. What does he say at the transfiguration? Listen. Listen to him. Where does Jesus speak now? Right here. Listen. And who is Jesus? You see, he appeals to his listeners' authority, the Old Testament, and he points people to who the scriptures themselves point to. The prophet like Moses and the one offspring of Abraham that everything leads to as we saw in Galatians. So how does the good news of the gospel there and then become the good news of the gospel here and now? The offer is on the table. Well, how should someone, how should these listeners respond to the offer God has made? So finally, this fourth point is this, therefore, is what you must do. This, therefore, is what you must do. My friends, here is today's English language again. The indicative, the statement, precedes the imperative, the command. This is what God has done. This is what you must now do. In a book some of us may be familiar with that was printed, written and printed about 100 years ago, it's called Christianity and liberalism. And it's not a liberalism politically, it's rather a a liberalism uh, religiously. And in it, the author, uh, J. Gresham Machen, says that liberalism is a different religion altogether than biblical Christianity. And early on, he makes this statement. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mode while Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. You see, that's what Peter's doing. Before Peter says, repent and believe, he tells his audience what God has done in Christ. He's fulfilled his promises in this man that you killed and that the Father raised up. Because you see, it's only after we have heard what God has done that we can rightly consider what we are to do. And what does Peter say? Repent therefore and turn again. Repent and believe. It's interesting, in Acts, if you did a study, whenever you see repent only, It also means believe. When you see believe only, it also means repent. And occasionally you'll see them together. Repent, therefore, and turn. 
turn from and turn to uh, believe. I'm thinking of 1 Thessalonians when Paul writes and he's so thankful about the report that these people did what? They turned away from their idols. They repented and they turned toward the living and true God. You see, you can't have one without the other. You can't have faith without repentance and you can't have uh, repentance without faith. And they're both gifts. They're two sides of the same coin. But repentance here, it means change your whole approach to God. One author has said this, it's to approach God on the basis of and through Jesus' work and record, not on the basis of and through our work and record. You see, I hate to tell you this. Well, actually, I don't hate to tell you this. I'm glad to tell you this. I apologize. Um, God is a performance-oriented God, okay? He really is. Don't, don't, um, don't get away with this idea that God just turns a blind eye to performance. God demands perfection, holiness. He's a performance-oriented God. But you see, my friends, the good news of the gospel, it doesn't hang with our performance. Why? Because there's no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and turned away from God except one. The one whom Peter is proclaiming. So my friends, I want to ask you now, ask yourself this question. How am I approaching God? What, what am I carrying with me? Uh, uh, am I carrying a record of my performance, my achievements? Or am I carrying a record of Jesus' performance. And notice one more thing God has done. God has the last word. God has raised His servant Jesus and sent Him to you, to the Jews first. Why? To bless you. You see, even... It is a blessing and a privilege to be a part of the visible church. Children, don't ever think that week after week, year after year, you are wasting your time. It is no waste of time to hear the promises. Promises made and promises kept. And you see, the Jews had the promises. And so the message is coming to them first to bless them. And look at the end. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Think about that for a moment. Wickedness. Wickedness. Um, in our prayer, what was it? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, Jesus talking to those people, do you think you're any better? Do you all want to be turned away from your wickedness? I do. The problem is we dress up our wickedness in whatever flavor kind of is tolerable. But once the flavoring wears off, it's wickedness. And the blessing is through repentance and faith, you are turned away from your wickedness. You see, my friends, God is demanding repentance and yet He is promising blessing. 
Did you hear that? God is demanding repentance, but he's promising blessing. When you hear that, oh, by God's grace and kindness, you turn from sin and you turn to Christ. It's a beautiful movement. Now, although this sermon starts with you and ends with you, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see, I'm always being told, hey, you need to make sermons practical. You need to make teaching practical. Is there anything more practical than knowing God for who He is, for how He has revealed Himself in the person and work of Christ? It's about God because you see the gospel is first and foremost the good news about what God has done and what God offers. And when you believe the good news, when you receive it, your life changes. Think about it. 1929, what was the news? The banks don't have enough money to cover, right? That's news, right? And what happened? People ran to the banks. You see, news changes you. Think about the news of the surrender in Europe or the surrender in Japan. That news resulted in life-changing things. When you believe the good news of the gospel, your life changes. I don't know if you've been to our website lately, but if you ever get there and you go to the resources page and you click on the sermons, but then you click on recommended reading, right at the top is this. The main resource we offer is Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of sinners, as He is made known and offered to us in the gospel. My friends, as we point others to Jesus Christ, may we not also fail to point one another to Jesus Christ as well. Because the Christian life is a long journey on the way home filled with dangers, toils, and snares, to quote John Newton. But God's grace has made, we've made it thus far by God's grace, and by God's grace we'll make it home. And God's grace is seen no more clearly than the person and work of Jesus. So my friends, let's keep pointing others and let's keep pointing ourselves to Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we here at Grace and Peace desire to echo the, the exclamation of Paul when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Oh, Father, help us to be bold in our proclamation of the truth of Jesus, but humble and compassionate, knowing that there are people out there that are just ignorant. Oh, Father, help us to point them to Christ as he's found in the scriptures. 
But Father, there are others who, who aren't ignorant, and yet they haven't, they haven't believed. And Father, we pray and ask that you would open their eyes to see, their ears to hear, their minds to know, and their hearts to receive and embrace Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. For we pray in his name. Amen.